What is Matt Borges thinking? Poking the bear. He's going after the prosecutors that are prosecuting him. It's a subject we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Tassi to wrap up a week that feels like it's has been as long as a month. I feel like we say that every week. No, no, this one really did. Come on. I don't know if it's the humidity or what, but man, oh man, I got up Wednesday thinking it was the end of the week and I had three more days to get through. (laughs) So let's get through it. How bad was Cleveland's population drop in the 2020 census, especially compared to the big drops in previous decades? And what are hi- other highlights of the census data released Thursday? Leila Tassi, one thing's for sure, Columbus has greatly surpassed Cleveland as Seriously. Ohio's major city. That's true. So the numbers are in, and you know, although Cleveland's population has continued to decline, it's not nearly as bad as some earlier decades. So according to the 2020 census, 372,624 residents are living in the city, and that's 6.1% less, or about 24,000 fewer residents than in 2010 when the city was home to 396,815 people. So that said, it's the third smallest drop in population since 1950 when the city hit its peak of just under a million. And from 1960 to 1990, the average decade decline was 16.6%. And between 2000 and 2010, the population decreased by 17%. So 6% ain't terrible. Okay, so uh, so just to put that in perspective, but, you know, the population fell below 375,000. That's the magic number. That's the, the number where the city charter dictates that below that threshold, city council has to shrink by two wards in the upcoming council redistricting process. So get ready for a cat fight, folks. <laughs> Except they've got, it won't affect the election in a few months. No, and then no, they've got no. four years to put something on the ballot to stop the shrinking. I, I suspect because of the battle to shrink the council that was waged by Tony George before he ran away with his tail between his legs because people were so outraged. I, the arguments there that you're disenfranchising Cleveland by reducing the representation could be used to stop this council reduction. It'll be interesting to see what they do because they all are just interested in preserving their seats or whether voters would go for it. But let's talk about the population drop. You, you, you know, the, 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 these kind of trends are like planetary movement, right? It takes long periods of time to see them. And you might be able to sense that what happened in those 10 years was a a a reversal of the trend. We do know lots of people move downtown and lots of, and with high income. I mean, you saw some income trends over the last 10 years that Richie Paparinen has been tracking that the people who are moving into the city are bringing some wealth with them to Tremont and downtown and places sure. like that. So we may have seen the slowdown. It was still though more than the census estimated, which surprised me. Um, but but I, I think it's another one where we'll have to see what happens in 10 more years. The problem is that we're moribund. You know, Cuyahoga County is stagnant while Columbus is raging ahead. That's why this mayor's election is so important. It's time 
to really get a visionary to to start to rebuild this city's reputation. The census makes that clear. What are some of the other highlights? What happened in Akron and Summit County and which counties around us are growing and which ones are not? Well, first, to your point uh, about Cordy Astolfi spoke to a couple experts who offered some perspective on this continued population loss, and they attributed it to policies that had been set in motion decades ago that made it easy to flee to the suburbs, most notably the, you know, the highway system that made commuting a breeze. But they but they predicted that the opposite could be true, too. You know, public policy surrounding regionalism and access to public transit could spur the opposite trend if done right. But honestly, though, that I was stunned to see how booming Columbus and Cincinnati are and not just those cities, because I know you Columbus kind of grows its population by by growing its boundaries. Right. I mean, it, it has annexed uh, lots and lots of, of uh, you know, communities. But, you know, what's the secret to the surrounding the, the whole county? Those Their whole county is is booming. And I, I'm so curious to know what could what could Cincinnati possibly have that Cleveland doesn't? Why is Cincinnati doing so much better? I mean, you know, besides Skyline Chili, which is disgusting. <laughs> well, no, there, well, no, there are clear reasons. I mean, what, in Cleveland, you've had these siloed groups that don't work together. The hospital systems warred with each other, and we had two economic development groups and in uh, the Greater Cleveland Partnership and what's the other one that we never hear of that weren't get, that didn't get along and that and in Columbus everybody was united. I mean that that was a place. I mean Les Wexner did it, but you had everybody moving in concert. You have the state capital, you got the university, but you had a much different community spirit. We just haven't been able to break down the barriers until now. Now you have Beju Shad, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, and he is already reaching out. You have new leaders in the hospital systems that are so that are so uh, well known now for working together. They've taken their show on the road. They're traveling to other cities to give speeches to hospital systems and how they can get rid of their wars and work together. So we're at this moment where if we do it right, you get the right mayor, you get the right county executive next year. You just might be able to start doing what Columbus and Cincinnati have done. Up till now, we all fight like cats. I mean, but you think, I mean, Columbus increased its population by 15 percent. Well, it, this is Laura Johnston. My sister and brother live in Columbus, so I'm down there a fair bit. I feel like they just had so much more space to grow. I mean, we were like completely built out. And everywhere you look in Columbus, they're building something new, whether it's houses or a shopping center. I, I felt like they had more green space oh, to build true, up right. on. That's Actually, true. though. Cleveland has more space than anybody right <laughs> That's now. That's no. also true. The yeah. estimate is that if we build out the lots we have in Cleveland, you could right. add 170,000 people in in a few years, and it's desirable. I mean, it's the land has been cleaned up, and you know it's convenient to downtown. We have mm-hmm. options. We have opportunities. You have seen it. I mean, the the downtown population grew during those ten years, and what the the odd thing was, this is the first time in how many decades where the the white black ratio in cleveland reversed itself that the the percentage of people in cleveland who are white went up and the percentage who are black went down right right and and i suspect that's because black families in cleveland want better education for their kids and are moving out to the suburbs to to try and get that although that could reverse in the next 10 years because of all the work cleveland schools are doing to do the better job I mean, it, it, we got to wait 10 more years, but but there's a lot of work that could be done here. And it all comes down to who gets elected as mayor. You know, it's if you make the wrong choice here, we're doomed. <laughs> yeah, right, so, right. No pressure. 
Yeah. So we're, we'll be doing some more work on this. For some reason, uh, the short version of our census story ran in the print edition of The Plain Dealer today. So read the one that we have on cleveland.com. Courtney Estalfi explains a lot. We'll be digging into this data for days, weeks, and months. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many of the coronavirus cases being seen in Ohio now are the Delta variant? And what are some of the other frightening statistics of this suddenly resurgent pandemic? Laura Johnson, we are surrounded by sick people. Oh, this is so frustrating. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. This is all Delta. Nearly 100% of the coronavirus samples analyzed in this state in late July showed this contagious Delta variant. Think, think about that, though, yeah. because, what, two months ago, we were talking about seeing it for the first time, right? right. So right. in just two months, this variant has just wiped out all the other variants and and is spreading like right. wildfire. Remember when we were thinking we were scared of the other ones, you know, the ones that had originated um, in the UK and, and I don't know what alpha, beta, and, you know, whatever. So yeah, this is huge. It's more contagious than the common cold. It's more contagious than the flu. Patients are getting sicker faster. 98% of people who have been hospitalized with COVID are people who haven't been fully vaccinated, which is just you know, mind boggling, because that means if you're vaccinated, you're protected from getting really sick. But there are le- our number of coronavirus cases per 100,000 just keeps climbing. We're at 194.2. That's up from last week's 125.1. And about 50 is when we talk about it being uh, recommended to wear masks. And remember, that was Mike DeWine's baseline for when he wanted to drop the mask mandate. And we actually did get there in June. It's just Hard to believe that in a a month, maybe a little over, we have just skyrocketed to where we are twice as bad as we were last year when we didn't have a vaccine. What I what I remember, and I can't remember what month it was, but it was right after news came out of Great Britain about the Delta variant and how contagious it was. And we were in the beginning of our vaccination surge in Ohio. And we talked about, wow, we, we have a small chance to get ahead of this. If we got everybody vaccinated before this thing got here and took right. over this country, we could contain it. But we didn't do that. Yeah, and we talked about this race, but it, it's hard to have a race if People don't want to run, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good analogy. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Matt Borges thinking in publicly attacking the prosecutors who will try him on racketeering charges in the notorious House Bill 6 bribery scandal? Jane Cahoon, we have seen other people do this with the feds. It's never a good idea. When the (laughs) feds are coming at you, they usually have a pretty strong case. He's not convicted of anything. He says he's innocent. But when the feds are doing the work, this isn't like county prosecutors. They usually have it and they're relentless. And when you poke them like this, it doesn't go well. What's he thinking? Yeah, as you said, don't poke the bear. But um, that's that's exactly what Matt Borges is doing. He he, you know, apparently against the advice of others. He he doesn't seem to be afraid of antagonizing the federal prosecutors because he says his relationship with them has basically already hit rock bottom and he doesn't have anything to lose. So just to refresh people's memories, uh, Borges is a lobbyist and former chair of the Ohio Republican Party. And he was one of the four associates who was indicted along with former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder in the House Bill 6 scandal. Like the others, as you said, he's accused um, of racketeering. But he was never really a big householder ally. Um, However, he was engaged to help support 
First Energy undermine a referendum campaign that was launched by HB6 opponents who were trying to overturn the law. And as part of that effort, he's accused of paying someone with the referendum campaign $15,000 to try to get inside information on the campaign. That person happened to be an FBI informant. So that's how that all came to be. But Borges has been adamant that he's done nothing wrong. He says um, the payment was actually in advance for some unrelated future political project and not a bribe. But Anyway, apparently, you know, since his indictment, he and his lawyer have met with with prosecutors for negotiations. And what happened during the course of the those negotiations is what Borges has taken public in interviews and on social media attacking the government for what he says, you know, he says they lied to him. So that's put prosecutors in this position of having to respond by saying they think Borges like misunderstood the whole thing. So I'm trying to sum this up simply, but, you know. Well, but but one of the things that was misunderstood is he claimed they that the federal prosecutors said that Dave Yost was involved in this. And they came out and they said, that's not what we were talking about. We were talking about somebody completely different. But what he said about Dave Yost, the attorney general, is pretty scary because Dave Yost is not a part of this case at all, uh, which is why I think the prosecutors came back. I think what he was saying was that during these negotiations with him and his lawyer and the and the feds, that they accused him of, of trying to uh, bribe Dave Yost to, to influence him to slow down the referendum process that, you know, that the opponents were had launched, you know, but and they showed him campaign contributions that he had made to Yost and kind of suggested that that was a bribe. But but they say, no, that wasn't it at all, that they they had talked to Dave Yost briefly about Larry House, something about Larry Householder. And nobody's implicated Dave Yost really no, in no, anything. No, not at all. Right. Um, so um, but he but. Borges thinks they were using like this false pretense to try to pressure him into taking a, a plea deal and help, you know, to help them take down Householder. And he basically said, you know, I'm really no friend of Larry Householder, but, you know, they need to get their own evidence and I'm not going to lie to a judge, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But as I said, the the lead prosecutor, Emily Glatfelter, you know, said this was a mis a misunderstanding and they they chided him for you know, this was supposed to be a confidential discussion, you know, for going out there in the public. And they also said that he had accepted a tentative plea deal. And Borges is like, no, 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 I never I never agreed to any any plea deal. So there's just a lot of back and forth. And it's well, it's ugly. He, he clearly was considering a plea deal. So while he's protesting his innocence, he still was considering taking a plea and ultimately didn't. The, the, the th there are two things that surprise me about this. One, those negotiations are you're, you're supposed to do those in good faith and keep them private. So for him to go public with that is rather shocking. The second thing is. Did, does he know the names Ken Johnson and Jimmy DeMora? I mean, <laughs> two guys who who slugged it out with the feds who are going to, you know, Jimmy's doing 28 years and Johnson's looking as, as much as 10. I mean, th <laughs> these guys control your fate. And while you have every right to go into court and and fight to prove your innocence, the <laughs> to poke at them like this, you're just getting mad. And, you know, they're going to be even more inspired to come at you. I, I just don't get the public nature of it. But we've seen others do it. 
and pay a big price. I can't think of one who's done it and then been acquitted or or been treated softly. So I I, I mean, I think this is crazy. Whether he's innocent or guilty, you know, his lawyers have got to shut him up because it's great for us. I think it's too late. I think it's it's too late, Chris. It's the, the, you know. It's a great story, but but wow, I was I mean, you just don't see that kind of thing very often. It's a great window into the process. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is East Cleveland using its federal stimulus dollars and why might that be illegal, according to the latest story in our Stimulus Watch project by reporter Robin Goist. Latasi, I leave it to East Cleveland to kind of be the case study on how not to use (laughs) stimulus dollars. I know, I know. This is such a good story. It made me nostalgic for my days covering East Cleveland, which is sort of the Wild West of Northeast Ohio politics. So, East Cleveland is receiving $26 million in American Rescue Plan money, and that's a lot of money for a small town. The census data yesterday said that there's only 13,000 people living there now. It's one of, if not if not the poorest city, it's one of them. So the need is great, but it also happens to be a city that is notoriously bad at money management. That city has bounced in and out of fiscal emergency for decades. So, so keep all of that in mind as I tell this story. <laughs> so a couple members of the city council are fumed because Mayor Brandon King has unilaterally decided to give $3 million of this this stimulus money to homeowners and senior citizens in the form of $3,000 microgrants for home improvement and $300 stimulus checks for seniors, all without council approval. So the council members are saying that they don't necessarily disagree with using the money in that way, but that they should get to vote on it. That is, after all, the point of city council. They hold the purse strings. They act as the check and balance on the administration. But King says that the law is on his side. He points to a city charter provision that says he must seek council approval for expenditures above $3,000 or the threshold laid out in state law, whichever is highest. So the threshold in the Ohio Revised Code is $50,000. So that's what King is using. And he's arguing that this isn't a $3 million expenditure. It's a series of expenditures. It's a series of microgrants and stimulus checks for individual residents. So each of those constitutes its own transaction, not subject to council approval. In fact, this is my favorite part of the story. <laughs> King's chief of staff told Robin Goist that Just about any expense can be broken into tinier expenses that can legally circumvent council approval. And while he was talking to her, he pointed to a pile of gravel on Euclid Avenue and said, for instance, if I needed $100,000 worth of gravel, I could buy it in increments of $2,000 until I got as much as I needed without asking council's permission. So none of that's legal or proper. And, and I, I look, I get that the council members said they think these grants are a good idea, but the mayor is basically walking around handing out money as he faces a reelection battle right now. Exactly. Some, something about this just stinks. This is not what federal legislators had in mind when they approved the stimulus money for American cities. It wasn't meant to be walking around money to hand out to people <laughs> right. no, with and, no demonstrated And in need. fact, you know, the mayor has printed up these flyers that are in circulation that have his picture on it with, you know, his making it look like he's taking full credit for this program and this money. And some of them say, thank you, Mayor King. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the council members are just livid about this. 
you know, the chief of staff and councilman Nathaniel Martin actually got into an argument at this press conference about the meaning of checks and balances. And, you know, I just, that's why I love well, all, all the king so is much. thinking about is checks. He doesn't care about the balances. <laughs> he's, he's just writing the checks. Now, the one thing is the census says this will be a less expensive program than thought. East Cleveland saw a gigantic population drop, right? They From did. like 17,000 to 13,000. Yeah, it was a huge drop to the point where, you know, yesterday Robin and I were discussing what could be behind that. We were like, there must be an error here. Did they just not do census outreach in East Cleveland? How is this possible that they've lost? such so many people well i think if you drive through east cleveland you could see it it's like a bombed out village i mean the the housing stock there is falling apart it, it look the city's been broke forever it's been mismanaged forever and they don't get basic services the you know and they have to rely on neighboring suburbs often for police and fire so people are getting out of there who would want to live in a violent poorly managed place. This is why there was the move to merge it into Cleveland so that it could at least get some professional management. I'm not surprised by the population drop, but having a mayor just walking around handing out money, I mean, it boggles the mind. One of the reasons we did Stimulus Watch was to to be guardians of the money and to show best case and worst case. This is going definitely into worst case use of the money. And East Cleveland will require that watchful eye for sure, because the precedent here is that Mayor King, uh, you know, city council sued Mayor King to figure out what happened to the last batch of stimulus money, which was like (laughs) a little more than four million bucks. And council was accusing him of just handing it out to unknown parties without competitive bidding or city council knowledge. You know, they're under the stimulus or they're under the uh, the federal or the state's watch right now. And records from the Ohio's Office of Budget Management show that the city spent its CARES Act funds on police and firefighter salaries and benefits and hazard pay for city employees who, who you know, did not work from home and upgrades to the courtroom and personal protective equipment. But council didn't approve these things. So, you yeah, know, it's, it's, that's still it's you know, tied a, up in the courts. And so, yeah, this is this a, is this is why we need stimulus watch. Yeah, this is the reason. It's bad. And we also have a long term project should I I think it'll publish in a month or two about the East Cleveland police, because that's riddled with problems as well. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The Veterans Administration is not messing around when it comes to protecting its patients from COVID. What's the latest move, Laura Johnston? Well, they're going to make sure that everyone is vaccinated. So this is expanding their mandate that they had last month. So this includes psychologists, pharmacists, social workers, nursing assistants, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, peer specialists, a whole host of people. Basically, anybody that comes in contact with a patient needs to be vaccinated. And their idea is just that we need to protect our the folks who come here, that they're vulnerable and we we need to treat them well. So it goes into effect Friday, August 13th, that's That's today, today. right? So they have eight weeks to provide proof of vaccination. You know, what I find interesting is that they're not requiring the patients. So if they're worried about everybody stepping into their building, having the ability to infect the patients, why not require vaccines of the patients too? I don't know. Can you do that? I mean, that's a really interesting question because these people need care. Um, I don't know if you can make them jump through a hoop in order to get it. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. But but it, but there's there's an exposure there. If people are coming right. in there that haven't been vaccinated, they could be bringing it in. I guess they're just taking every step possible that they can take to reduce that chance. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What is the range of approaches the Cleveland mayoral candidates would take to bring high-speed broadband to underserved areas of the city? Jane Cahoon, Seth Richardson, and I did special episodes of this podcast with all of the well, six of the seven candidates who are running. Russ DeBello won't talk to us. Uh, and we asked a bunch of questions about different issues. We're now rolling out some text-based stories based on that. This was one of the first. What did we find? Well, we find, first of all, we know that broadband connectivity is really lacking for many Cleveland residents, that the National Digital Inclusion Alliance rated it the worst big city in America for connectivity a couple of years ago, with about 31% of households having no broadband access and around 46% not having access to a more reliable uh, connection. But anyway, the some of these candidates, you know, want to spend money to invest in broadband infrastructure, you know, maybe using um, the funds in the infrastructure bill, if it ever gets all the way through Congress, or uh, federal coronavirus relief funds to do that. And a couple of them are open to a municipally operated utility type model uh, for for broadband. But, uh, but I'll give you just a, a sampling. Uh, City Councilman Bashir Jones wants to work with Digital C. That's a nonprofit that's been working on this issue and they provide low cost internet at like $18 a month to broadband dead zones in the, in the city. Uh, Dennis Kucinich also praised their work. But, um, he doesn't really have a concrete plan, but said he's committed to find ways to to bridge this digital divide. Uh, former Councilman Zach Reed said he he wants to treat broadband like a utility, like water or electricity. Um, he didn't really have details on what what he meant, but um, and then Justin Bibb, the nonprofit executive, he he also agrees that it should be treated as a utility rather than a luxury. That that it's really a a, a civil Right, and he wants to explore creative um, solutions to this. He he cited a, a case. I didn't remember this. Like several years ago, they had like sixty-one thousand LED streetlights, and Councilman Kerry McCormick had recommended to put some sort of smart cellular device in those streetlights. And he says that you know, council and the mayor said no, um, the leadership and, you know, that would have connected 61,000 homes. So anyway, those are the kinds of solutions he prefers. Uh, State Senator Sandra Williams said she wants to, um, you know, put out a request for proposals and use both state and federal funds to address this issue. Um, Kevin Kelly, the council president, this is a big issue for him in his campaign. He wants to use federal stimulus dollars on on upgrading the the infrastructure. Um, he wants to do like a massive overhaul. Um, he wants to he he apparently helped um, or he established something called Old Brooklyn Connected in his ward. It's like a public Wi-Fi service, and he he wants to expand that. And um, well, and, and look, you got to give him the bona fides. Ten years ago, before anybody else was talking about this, he did provide broadband in his ward in a fairly big way. So he he can yeah. speak with authority on that. He also favors a, a municipally owned system. And I think Kucinich was really the only other one who seems to totally be open to that idea. The other ones are a little more skeptical saying, you know, eh, we don't know if Cleveland should take that on given the problems it already has running the utilities it already runs. So, um, so anyway, just a range of ideas there. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What are the late? Who are the latest honorees of the Cleveland Arts Prize? Leila Tassi, this is a unique thing to Cleveland. Our very own Steve Litt got one a few years ago. Oh, that's who, nice. Who was honored? Who's being honored in 2021? So, yeah, this is the 61st year for the Cleveland Arts Prize. And so some of the highlights from the list of winners uh, among the mid-career artists is Tony-winning actor Alice Ripley, who has credits in Playhouse Square performances and, and also on TV shows and Broadway. Beyond her acting, she also creates music with her band Ripley and creates original paintings and digital designs. And then the Lifetime Achievement Award goes to Raymond McNeese, the current Poet Laureate of Cleveland Heights. He's released 11 books of poems, monologues, and CDs, and McNeese has toured around the world with his works, and he leads the band Tongue in Groove. That's a really cool name, by the way. <laughs> a po poetry music jam band. Also, I'm wondering how many cities have poet laureates around here? That That's kind of, that's an interesting uh a uh, feature for someone to do. Um, also, they're giving a prize to Sean Watterson, who co-founded the Happy Dog 13 years ago. And this is a place that has hosted thousands of musicians, thinkers, comics, and more. Watterson's recent work with the National Independent Venue Association helped secure federal funding for independent venues affected by, by the COVID pandemic. And a special citation goes to Franz Velzermost, the conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra. He's the longest running music director of the Cleveland Orchestra. He, he spent 20 years uh, with, with the, the orchestra. So you can see the full list of winners in Annie Nikoloff's story on cleveland.com. Um, it's, uh, um, yeah, what an honor. It's a big deal. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We can't go into the weekend without talking about this. How big a deal is the Wiffle Ball World Series taking place in Twinsburg this weekend? Lord Johnson, I didn't know there was a Wiffle Ball World Series. I didn't know it was in Twinsburg. It's pretty big. There's a lot of people playing. Yeah, I had no idea. I feel like Twinsburg has the lock on weird festivals because they just finished their Twins Festival last weekend. But um, yeah, this is the scaled down version of baseball. It's played with a bat, plastic bat and a plastic ball with holes, obviously, that is provided so you can't bring your own doctored bat or ball to this tournament. 114 teams have signed up for this two days. Players are seven years old to more than 30, and there'll be 200 games in Liberty Park. So the whole idea actually came from a fundraiser from the Twins Ball Baseball League. They wanted to raise money for a new ball field, and they had this joke of, well, let's play wiffle ball. And now it's like this fabric of the community. Um, home run fence is 90 feet away. You're trying to slam it over there. There's no base runners. So you just have ghost runners on the field. So this would be interesting to watch. No one has to wear a baseball mitt to catch anything. And you can have strikeouts, fly balls, and line drives that get caught. Uh, balls that don't reach the first line are out. And there's a backstop that calls balls and strikes, but they do have an ump to just keep outs and count straight and determine if you got a catch made. So, you know, it's it's very well organized, it sounds like. I have a question. I, <laughs> I assume that they organize these teams by by age, right? Like so that you're not going to have 30 year olds right. playing against 70 year olds. <laughs> right? I, I would assume so. Some, um, some... So that yeah, you don't have Mixed that competition, teams. right? Maybe <laughs> maybe mom, maybe mom, their family teams. I don't know. We'll have to check into that. But please oh go to the winners plus teams that travel the furthest. They have the best uniform or the best team name. So I, I think you could spend the rest of the day coming up with like a wiffle ball punny name. Well, they're supposed to have fantastic weather, so that's a plus for this weekend. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Where you are supposed to have fantastic weather. I hope Laura, Jane, and Layla, you all enjoy it. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Monday with another discussion of the news.